Over the last several weeks, we've been learning about the healing ministry of Jesus. We've seen that it's the will and the desire of God to bring healing into our lives. We've learned how to minister to one another, minister healing, pray for healing uh, with one another. Last week, we saw that Jesus brings healing into our disappointment, our doubt, and our depression. It's amazing. I love Jesus. And today, we're going to see that Jesus has power to heal our past. Jesus has power to heal our past. As we get started, I want to ask you, how many of you are familiar with the Flint water crisis? We got any, anybody familiar? Okay, a little bit better in the first service. I'm going to teach you about it. And next time you're at a dinner party, you can pull this out as a little piece of information. You can sound very intelligent. Uh, so in Flint, Michigan in 2014, they were in a time of economic kind of crisis. They needed to balance the budget. Things had gotten so bad that the state government had taken control of the local financial uh, government decisions because they were trying to help the budget balance out. So they were looking at ways they could cut costs or readjust. I mean, we've all been there where you're trying to figure out how to make the budget work, right? And one of the things that they saw, an opportunity they saw, was Flint had for 50 years had brought in their water from Lake Huron through Detroit over to Flint. Great water from the Great Lakes, and that had been what they'd been doing, but because it had to travel such a great distance, it was very expensive. And within Flint, there was the Flint River, and there was the Flint water treatment plant that they had used for a long time, but had stopped using when they shifted over to the water from Lake Huron. Well, they said, well, hey, we have water here. We have a water treatment plant. Why don't we just use that and we can save some money? They ran the math and they'd save $5 million over the next two years and make budget. So it seemed like a great idea. They made the switch. They went for it. But things did not go according to plan. What they didn't account for, right? I'm sure they looked at every angle they could think of. But what they didn't account for or didn't think through was the chemical difference between the water in the Flint River and the water from Lake Huron. Some of the trace minerals from the two water sources were different. The water from the Flint River was something like 20 times more corrosive than the water from Lake Huron. So combine that with the fact that Flint, the plumbing system throughout the city, the age of it was when people used lead-based pipes and so as the water was fine from Lake Huron because it wasn't corrosive, this water from the Flint River, as it went through the pipes, corroded the pipes, pulled the lead out of it. And so now people are drinking, bathing in, washing their food with lead-tainted water. We don't know lead is toxic for us. And so people began getting sick. Children began reporting these lead-based sicknesses. And the government's trying to figure out what in the world has gone wrong. Can you show the picture of the water differences? So on the one side, it's from Lake Huron. On the other side, it's from the Flint River. Yikes. Can you imagine pouring and getting that? I mean, it'd just be so scary. So all sorts of people are getting sick. They're trying to figure out where do we go wrong. They eventually isolate the problem. And when they calculate how much is it going to cost to fix, to kind of reverse this decision they've made and fix the damage, the total came to $55 million dollars. Wow, trying to save five million bucks, end up needing to spend $55 million. Man, what a poor decision, right? And it's easy for us to look from here at what they did and be like, how could you not think about the chemicals in the water? You know, it's easy to see that 
over there. But I'm sharing this story with you, not so that you might win trivia, you know, next time you play Trivial Pursuit, but to point something out that we all need to be aware of. That there are things in our lives that are beneath the surface, that are beyond kind of just a glance at that we might think through. There are invisible issues in our lives that have the power to destroy us. Just like these chemicals in the water from the Flint River had the power to destroy the pipes and destroy lives. We have those same type of issues. One of those is the area of forgiveness. Forgiveness or lack thereof is going to be one of the defining issues of your life. Forgiveness has been scientifically shown in studies that people who are forgiving compared to people who hold grudges and don't forgive, forgiving people experience higher life satisfaction scores. They enjoy life more. They have less risk for heart disease and diabetes. They sleep better. They have less stress, less anxiety, and less cases of depression. Wow, forgiveness is powerful. And when we choose not to forgive, it also has ramifications for us and for our lives. Forgiveness is gonna be one of the issues that defines the fruitfulness of your life and mine. I read this quote from a Catholic priest on the topic of forgiveness that I thought was really significant. And he said this, as we age, we can slim our spiritual and psychological vocabulary down to a very few concepts. But one of those concepts is forgiveness. As we age, we need to forgive. We need to forgive those who hurt us. We need to forgive ourselves for our own mistakes. We need to forgive life for having been unfair. And then forgive God for seemingly not having protected us. All of this so that we do not die bitter and angry. It's powerful, right? That as you get older, you have more time period, more relationships. You've been through more things and thus have more opportunity to be offended, to be disappointed, to be hurt, to be upset, to be jaded, right? So as we grow, as my wife and I, we've been married 15 years. After 15 years of being together, we have a lot more time and issues that we can become offended with one another over, right? And so if we don't equally grow in our forgiveness, we're going to end our relationship bitter and cold. You think about that in all of life. As you get older, you can think through people from your life that it's just easier to have offenses that you carry with you and that shape you. That's what Rollheiser is pointing out. As I was thinking about forgiveness this week, I realized it's the one tool that you and I have to change the past. When we choose to forgive, we take events that have happened in our past and we rewrite them. We give them new meaning. We redefine them. No longer will this thing be the defining thing about my relationship with that person or be the defining thing about my life. I literally can change the past through using the power of forgiveness. Not only do I change the past, but I change my present, right? I can be free in my heart and not bitter and angry and jaded about all the wrong that's been done to me. And it changes my future because now instead of living out of reaction from the past, 
I can look forward to the future and be the person God created me to be and step into the things that God created me to step into and not just live kind of as, a, as an after effect of something that was done to me or that I did 5, 10, 15 years ago. Forgiveness is powerful. 40 years ago. There we go. Forgiveness is powerful. But it's also very difficult. It's very difficult, very challenging, even though we know it's the right thing to do. It's very costly to forgive. And what we're going to read today uh, in the text, we're going to read one of the most famous, most memorable stories from the gospel. This is the kind of story, if you saw it in a movie, as a scene from a movie, you'd remember it 10 or 20 years later. Like it's that memorable. And it's about the power of forgiveness. And I believe that as we learn from this story, that power is going to be released in your life and mine to both experience forgiveness and give forgiveness to others. So Luke chapter 7 and we're going to be in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So again, the Pharisees are kind of a political party, a religious party in Jesus' day. They dominate the life of society. They dominate kind of the thought process. They're the guardians of God and everything good, right, and true, or at least that's how they viewed themselves, right? And one of these Pharisees, we're going to find out his name is Simon, he has invited Jesus over to his house for a dinner party. Now, we don't know what his motives were. We don't know if he was a secret kind of fan of Jesus or if he was critical of Jesus. We're not sure. But he invites Jesus over for a dinner party. One of the things that we see throughout the Gospels is Jesus likes to eat. He eats with a lot of different types of people. We've seen him eating with Matthew, the tax collector, who was known as an evil guy who is known as an enemy of God, and yet Jesus is going to his house and eating with him. And now we see him kind of on the other end of the spectrum, going to the Pharisee's house, going to kind of the, the, the religious guy's house and eating with him. So Jesus is eating with them, and they're reclined at a table. They're laying back at a table, which is the way they did it in Jesus' day. And a woman in that town interrupts the dinner party. It says this in verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Got a little picture of what this might look like for you to visualize it. Here's Jesus reclining at this table and there's the woman kind of washing his feet with her tears. Now, so many times when we read the Bible, you're like, well, that's different than the way we do it. But you learn, oh, that's just the way they did it back then. That was just their culture. That was normal for them. I want to let you know, this was as awkward then as it would be now. <laughs> like imagine that you are at a party with friends. Someone uninvited shows up, right? And they're crying. And not only are they crying, but they come over to your feet and they begin to cry over your feet. And then they're wiping their, your, your feet with their hair. And then they're pouring out this perfume on your feet while everyone is like, what is going on? Like, have you ever been at a dinner party or any kind of party where it's really awkward like that? I have. I've, I've actually been the source of the awkwardness. In college, my roommate and I, one day we were playing, uh, we were playing basketball after class, it was three or four in the afternoon, and uh, we play, 
turns 5.30 or 6. My roommate's like, hey, you want to eat dinner together tonight? I'm like, sure. We eat dinner together a lot. He said, I won this meal from the cafeteria. I enter my name in a contest and it's like a free meal and I can bring a guest. She's like, great, let's go. I said, do we need to like, you know, we're sweaty. We've been playing basketball. Do we need to change or anything? It's like, no, 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 it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We're on the way over there. And I started to think about what day of the year it is. It's Valentine's Day. <laughs> and we show up at this deal and we're like sweaty, smelly. We play basketball for a couple hours. We walk in and this is like date night for Valentine's Day. So all these people are there dressed, you know, very nicely. They've gotten prepared. They've asked someone out. They're like there. I mean, they're trying to impress. And here we walk in and they hand us a rose when we walk in. So it's so awkward, right? You walk in and the whole place is like, like the violin player like stops and is like, what is going on here? That's not the awkward part though. <laughs> so they seat us at a table. Maybe there's a hundred students there. So maybe there's like, uh, you know, 20 tables, maybe 15 tables of 10 or 12 people. So not a lot of students. School had maybe 13 or 14,000 people in it. Maybe 120, 140, 200 people there. They seat us at a table by this girl uh, who just happens to be my roommate's ex-girlfriend, who they had a very bitter breakup, and she is there with some guy that asked her out for Valentine's Day. And now we're of all the people. They sit us right next to them, my roommate right next to her for this Valentine's dinner. Oh man, I mean, you wanna talk about music stopping so awkward, that awkward. This is that awkward. This is that like, oh, what is going on? So if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're like, uh, things just got really uncomfortable, right? We don't know what Jesus is thinking, but we find out that Simon, the host of the party, he's feeling the awkwardness and he's actually really worked up about it, but he's worked up about something surprising. Like if I was the host of the dinner party, and you're at my house and this random person comes in my house and they're crying over your feet, I'm thinking, why did my kids let this person in? Or how do I get this person out? This is so embarrassing, right? That's what I'm thinking. What's Simon thinking? Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, note that, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, and that she is a sinner. So if I were hosting the party or you were hosting the party, we probably would be frustrated in their day at our servants that let the person in, or at this lady, like, what are you doing? Or at ourselves, like, how do we let this happen? No, Simon is offended at Jesus. He's upset at Jesus. He's like, if Jesus knew who this woman was, he would not be letting her do this to him. Why? because she was a sinner. We find out that, that Bible scholars believe that this woman most likely was a prostitute. We don't know that, but she was a woman with a reputation. She was a type of woman when she would go places, people knew who she was and what she had been doing and that reputation was not good. So Simon is like, man, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who this lady is and he wouldn't be letting her do this to him. That's what he's thinking. That's what he's saying to himself. 
Now, it's a little bit of irony in the next verse. Jesus answers Simon. Wait, hold on. Simon was thinking to himself, if this guy really was a prophet, he would know what was going on. And Jesus answers Simon's thought. You get it? Like, he's questioning if Jesus is a prophet, and Jesus is like, well, I can tell you what you're thinking right now, Simon. Okay? Before you start judging me, here, let's talk about you. Right? And Jesus has this power to do this. Over and over and over again, he has the ability to see into people's hearts and to see the secret things in their hearts. And he often shares those with them, not to shame the person, but to actually heal the person, to help them become aware of, oh my goodness, this is really where I'm at and I need healing. I need restoration, right? We see this over and over again. We've seen it, Jesus at the temple, knowing what was in people's hearts. Now we see him at a dinner party, knowing what was in people's hearts. And this isn't limited to Jesus. This is actually, we learn as we read the Bible, this is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is a gift that the Holy Spirit has given to the people of God. And this is a gift that you and I can walk in. That we can walk in, the Bible calls it words of knowledge, that we can walk in those. If you've been with us a little bit, you know we share at the end of service kind of some, what seem like pictures or, or verses or things that you're like, I don't really know where those guys got that from. But um, we share those, right? Because we've prayed and we've taken time to listen to the Lord and we share those. And it's unbelievable how often those things, there'll be someone who comes who's like, that was me and I have no idea how you guys knew that. That was my dream last night. That is crazy. Stuff like that. It's wild. It's what the Bible calls words of knowledge. And if you're interested in that, next Sunday, I just want to invite you, next Sunday evening, we're going to be doing a training from five to seven on words of knowledge. Chase and Leslie, y'all wave in the back. I see y'all back there. They're going to be helping us with that. It's going to be awesome. It's free. You can come to that next Sunday. You don't even have to register. Just show up and we're going to have a great time. Back to our text. So Jesus answers his thought. And he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon's a little shaken here, you know. Uh, okay, tell me, teacher. Verse 41, Jesus gives him a story. Jesus is going to teach him a lesson, but he starts out by taking something from everyday life, which Jesus often does. We see him talk about trees and fruit, treasure, and now we see him talk about money, something we all can relate to. And he's going to share a story that's going to be important for understanding what's happening in this scene. He says this, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One of the person, he, he owned 500 denarii, which was their currency. The other person owned 50. So they both owe money. One owes a lot. One owes a significant amount, but it's not quite the same. And neither of them actually had the money to pay back the money lender. Okay. So both have borrowed money. We don't know how, we don't know why. Differing amounts, but neither can pay it back. The money lender forgives the debt of both men. Now, Simon, which of these two men will love him more? And we can think about this. You know, it may not happen every time, but most often you would say, well, the person who had the greater debt forgiven. That's what Simon answers. Simon says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. I want you to remember that lesson or that story about debt and forgiveness in a moment because Jesus is going to come back to that as he explains what's going on here. Verse 44, Jesus then turns toward the woman, turns to the woman and is speaking to Simon. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet. That was the customary thing. If you were having someone over, 
You would give them water for their feet to wash their feet because they've been walking dirty roads, donkeys and camels doing their business in the roads. You get to someone's house, your feet are dirty, right? So it's normal if you were a good host, if you were honoring someone, you would have water to wash their feet. Simon didn't do any of that. So Simon, you didn't give me any water for my feet. But this woman, she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. Verse 45, Simon, you didn't give me a kiss. That was a normal kind of greeting. If you've ever been in the Middle East or Italy, it's just how people greet one another. Jesus is like, Simon, you didn't give me like a, 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 a greeting like that. But this woman, from the time I entered, she's not stopped kissing my feet. Verse 46, Simon, you didn't put oil on my head. Again, another common thing, just a sign of honor for the guest. But she has poured perfume on my feet. So she's honored me in that way. Look at verse 47, because now Jesus ties it all together. Therefore, Simon, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Why? As her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So Jesus says to Simon, Simon, I want to teach you a thing about my kingdom. This woman who you have called a sinner, that is who she was. But she is forgiven. I have forgiven her and she's been forgiven much. Therefore, she loves much. She loves me much. Her love is a response to the forgiveness that has been extended to her in her life. Okay. Simon, by contrast, who is the person you would expect to be the one close to God, to be the one that honors God, to be the one that's right with God. He's cold. Where this woman is passionately grateful, Simon is cold as an iceberg. He's distant. He's, he's rude to Jesus. Right? This is a great irony. It's a great twist. Now, what I want to point out to you is Simon is cold in his heart to Jesus because he's been forgiven little. But that's not, that doesn't mean that he doesn't need to be forgiven much. His experience of forgiveness is limited by the posture of his heart, by the pride in his heart. Jesus over and over and over again calls out the Pharisees time and again for their pride. They were snobs. Calls them out time and time again for their greed calls them out time and time again for their hard heartedness to people, for their cruelty, for the way that they would nitpick about little things, but leave out the weightier things that God called them to, for these false standards they would put on people. Jesus all the time is calling out the Pharisees for their sin. Simon has much sin in his life, even though he looks like he's the religious guy. He has much sin, but he's not experienced forgiveness for that sin because he's prideful. He doesn't think he has need. But the fact of the matter is he has great need as this woman's response is showing. I want to point this out to you because so often I hear people who grew up in the church your parents took you to church. You were raised in a godly home. You kind of done the right thing. You, 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 you followed God your whole life. You come to me and you're like, man, I kind of wish sometimes that I had like a season where I was like in rebellion in my life 
so I could have a better testimony of how God has saved me. You know, because sometimes if you have like the sex, drug and rock and roll testimony, right, that gets more airtime in churches. And so if you're like, well, I kind of always went to Sunday school and I, I did what they told me to do. And, I, you know, I never did this or that or the other kind of have a boring testimony. I wish I had something a little more exciting, maybe a little more passion in my relationship with God. Maybe you, you, you felt that I have a little bit more to share with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Listen to me. Listen to me. Lean in. God saving you, Jesus saving you from your pride, from your greed, from your stinginess, from your cruelty, from your bitterness, from your hard heartedness is just as powerful and just as needed as Jesus saving you from the sex, drugs and rock and roll kind of story that you whatever you've heard. It's powerful and it's meaningful. And if God has done that in your life, you have a testimony. You have been forgiven much and you have power to love much. And people need to hear the testimony of how God has worked in your life. Both Simon and the sinful woman need to be saved. They both need desperately the forgiveness of God. And whether you grew up in church or you grew up out of church, whether you feel like you've done the right thing your whole life and obeyed all the rules or not, we both need God's salvation. We both need great forgiveness in our lives. So you need to share that testimony of how God has moved in your heart and in your life. And if you don't have a testimony like that, if you're like, I don't know that you saved me from pride or greed or this or, or that, then maybe you need to know Jesus. Like maybe you need to experience that. And I'm lovingly sharing that with you. Maybe it's a wake up call. This was meant to be a wake up call for Simon. Jesus spends so much time with Pharisees in the gospel. It makes me so frustrated. I wish he'd just write them off. I'm like, just lose the religious guys. They're always offended with you. They're always upset. Just go like with Matthew and the disciples and this woman and just go do the stuff, man. Let's ride. Let's stop worrying with these other people. But Jesus loves Pharisees. And Jesus at, at Simon's house, not to write Simon out, but to bring Simon in. And Jesus bring this up with him because he wants Simon to see his need so that he can experience the forgiveness and life transformation that's available to him. And Jesus wants that for you. Verse 48, Jesus turns to the woman and he says, woman, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? They're blown away at this. This was so important to them. In their culture, only God and God alone could forgive sin. And here Jesus is not just healing people, not just casting out demons, not just praying for someone's sin to be forgiven. Jesus himself is declaring to this woman, your sins are forgiven. That is an action for God and God alone. So like, who is this? Who is doing this? Who is Jesus? What is he doing, right? It startled him. It stunned him. It's amazing. And this is where Christianity stands different than other religions of the world. Muhammad for forgiveness of sin, Muhammad says, we need to go do these things and then ask God and hopefully he'll forgive you. Buddha did not say he could forgive sin. He said, you need to overcome the desires of this world and you need to die to them. And that's how you get free of sin. Jesus said, I don't need to ask anybody else. I'm God. Your sins are forgiven, right? 
This is very different. Not all paths lead up the same mountain. We respect people regardless of what they believe. But I want you to see that the gospel is so different than the traditional religions of this world. And if you don't know Jesus and you're here today, you need to understand that. You're not becoming a Christian is not, well, now I do these six religious things. Becoming a Christian is I'm going to receive the forgiveness that Jesus wants to give to me because he wants to give it, not because I've done my, crossed my T's and dotted my I's. Amen. Okay. So they're amazed, but I'll be honest with you. I bet if we were to survey the room, most of us are like, eh, yeah. Okay, cool. He forgives sin. Yeah. Right? It's kind of like when your friend asks you about watching that movie that you've heard is good. Everybody says you should watch it, but you're just not interested. You want to watch this? Eh. I don't know. Right? You go to that restaurant. It's like, eh. That's what most of us are when we hear this. Eh. I don't know. I don't know that's that big a deal. Why is that? Why doesn't this strike us? And it's not because the story's not, the story's familiar. So we're like, well, I heard it before. That's not it. The reason that most of us are like, eh, I don't know, Zach, is this. Uh, up until about 400 years ago, people lived with a view that God or gods and goddesses or whatever, however you viewed it, were at the center of the universe. And that our lives found their shape wrapped around them. It was a God-centric view of the world, right? About 400 years ago, a philosophical movement comes along, a social movement comes along. Some call it the Enlightenment. I question how enlightened it was, but it comes along in Europe. And it's a response against the abuses of the Catholic Church. And it's a response against the abuses of kings and queens in the ways that they governed. And they said, hey, we do not want someone else to have authority over us. We don't want the church to have authority over us. We don't want the king or the queen to have authority over us. We don't want God to have authority over us. We want to be our own authorities. We want to decide through our own reason what's right and what's wrong. We don't need someone else to tell us what to do, right? That's the enlightenment. You and I, we live 400 years removed from that. We are the fruit of that movement. When that happened, no longer was it God at the center of the universe, but it was me and it was you. Not like in a collective sense, but like, I think I'm the center of the universe. And you think you're the center of the universe, but you're mistaken, because really I am, right? That's what we all think. <laughs> and that's how we live. So it's like, I don't really care about forgiveness from God. If anything, God needs forgiveness from me for how he's offended me and how my life hasn't worked out like it was supposed to. And if we need forgiveness from someone else, it's because we can't believe we did the thing that would make us look that bad. It's like, oh gosh, I need to get forgiven because I can't be identified with that thing. How appalling, right? Because I'm the center of the universe. And if we need to forgive someone else, it's because we know holding on to the bitterness will keep me from being the glorious thing that I'm supposed to be. It will hold me back. Me, 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 me. You get the idea, right? So forgiveness from God, eh, I don't know, Zach. That's how most of us live. Here's the problem. When we live that way, forgiveness is incredibly hard, incredibly painful, incredibly tiring, incredibly taxing on our lives. Because if you think back to Jesus' illustration about, about forgiveness, he said, anytime there's a debt, someone has to pay for the debt. Either the offender pays the price, right? That's called revenge. You offend me, I get back at you. You're gonna pay for what you did. To me, you're going down. 
That's one way. Second way is that the offended party not only gets offended, but then they decide that they're going to swallow, they're going to eat, they're going to pay for the price of that debt. I'll say, well, I'm not going to get my revenge on you, though you wronged me. Though you did this to me and it hurt so much, I'm not going to get my revenge on you. I'm going to not only experience that pain the first time, but I'm going to eat it again and let you go. I'm going to pay for it out of my own resources. It's a really painful way to live. And if you do that enough, even as good as forgiveness may be, you end up either like a doormat where all the life is sucked out of you and you're just like, here I am. Or you turn Terminator, right? You get bulletproof and no one can get close to you and no one can affect you because no one's going to hurt you because you've been hurt. Those are the two ways that we can go if we're at the center. But if God is at the center, if we live not with me being the center of my universe, but if God is the center of my universe, there's a new variable introduced into the equation. There's a new kind of person involved. Because when I sin against you, it's not just me sinning against you, but I'm also sinning against my creator who created me and created you and designed the world to flourish in the way of love. So when I go against that and sin against you, right, not only have I wronged you, but I've wronged God. I've sinned against my creator. I've done injustice against him. And not only have I done injustice against him once, but how many of you know people who because of what they've experienced from other people, from the sin they've experienced from other people will say, how can God be good if he would allow something like this to happen in my life or this person's life, right? So not only when I sin, do I hurt you and I offend God, I sin against him, but I also offend his reputation because now people are making false accusations against him when it was not his desire at all. It was me totally doing that and sinning. So we got a problem here, right? So now you start saying, oh, I see how this forgiveness from God might actually be important if God's at the center, okay? And if that God that's at the center is not like a nebulous abstract version of God, but it's Jesus, the one who gave himself on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and mine, to pay the debt of your sin and mine, then when I come before God, and I'm in need of his forgiveness, what I see is one hanging on the cross who's paid the price for my forgiveness, I find what I need. And then in Jesus, when I see him rise again, the resurrection, what I see is Jesus taking on the sin, the payment, the penalty for the whole world, for the wrongs that you've done and that you've done and that I've done, taking those in himself, saying, I'm gonna pay for those, you're not gonna pay for those, I'm gonna pay for those. And in the resurrection, I'm going to restore what was lost because of your sin. To the person you've wronged, you know what? I'm going to restore to them what the locusts have stolen. I'm going to give back to them and not just give back to them. I'm going to give back to them a hundredfold. That's the resurrection. Jesus is the only one with the bank account big enough to do that. You understand? So when we say, why did Jesus have to die? He died to pay the penalty for your sin. Someone was going to pay it either you or the person you sinned against. And God said, I'm going to step in to this equation and I'm going to take on your sin. Wow. And I'm going to rise again because I'm going to restore 
the effects of your sin, what was stolen, I'm going to restore it back in your life and in the person you sinned against. Amazing. That restoration happens so much in this life when we receive and walk with Jesus. But the Bible tells us that it doesn't even compare to the restoration that's to come in the age to come at the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is healing the whole world. This is amazing. So now with Jesus, not only do I experience forgiveness with real power, now there's new capital, a new bank account, new investor for me to have resource to forgive from. No longer do I need to forgive you just based on the resource that I have, this limited bank account of my life. But I have access to the bank account that never runs dry. The king of kings, the resource of heaven. And I've received much. And now I can be like a pass-through account. And I can give forgiveness to you in such a way that doesn't leave me as a doormat. It doesn't leave me depleted and crushed. It's still hard to make the decision. But there's power. You're not doing it just on your own resources. So you start thinking this way, you're like, oh man, this actually is really good news. Okay, I'm astonished now, Zach, that Jesus forgives sin. I see how I need that. And then look in verse 50, and we're closing with this. Jesus then says to the woman, woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That word construction right there is the same thing Jesus said when he heals the woman with the issue of blood in Luke chapter 8. It's the same thing that he said when he healed the leper. In Luke chapter 18, it's the same thing that he said, or Luke chapter 17, it's the same thing they said when he heals the blind man in Luke chapter 18, right? But instead of healing a physical disease, he's healing an invisible killer, sin and unforgiveness. He's healing this woman and now he's saying, go in peace. That's not just go and feel good about yourself. That word peace right there is God's peace. It's power for people with different backgrounds and different personalities to work together for the flourishing of the world. So this woman whose life was spent either being destroyed or destroying people uh, in, in sexual immorality. Now Jesus is saying, I'm removing that from you. You have a new identity. You're forgiven. And I'm sending you forth with a new destiny. Rather than being a destroyer, you're going to be a contributor. Rather than being someone who's a cancer, you're going to be a builder. You're going to be a blesser. And the world is going to be better because you are here. That's transformation. And that's what Jesus wants to do in our lives if we'll come to him. Man, this is exciting. So if you are not a Christian, it's a great day to come to church. Jesus wants to forgive you and wants to give you new life, wants to heal your past, make you new today and give you a new future. And if you are a Christian, it's a great day to remember why and say, thank you, Jesus. This is awesome. I want to invite you to stand and we're going to close with that. Our prayer and prophetic team will be available after the service to pray and minister to people. Uh, a few particular words. Uh, <clears throat> the team, had a, as they were praying, had a vision of a pine cone that was burned with fire. And though it was burned with fire, this burning allowed the seeds inside to come alive. God wants to bring beauty from ashes. Second one was they saw a bird's nest and there was a baby bird and a mother in it. The mother flew off. And in that time, the baby bird felt isolated and abandoned. But reality, the mother bird was gathering food and resources. In this time of perceived silence from God, he is preparing a future for you. So if any of those hit home and you need ministry, you're like, I need forgiveness or I need to start a relationship with Jesus. Our prayer and prophetic team will be available up front. I'm going to pray for us all as we dismiss. Jesus, you're awesome. You're amazing. 
God, thank you that you, with you there is forgiveness. And as we receive your forgiveness for our lives, Lord, our paths are transformed. Who we are is made new. We're released in a new destiny, Lord. And we can be healers. We can bring healing to the world around us. So I pray for my friends here, Lord, that we would experience today the power of your forgiveness in our lives and that we would let that power flow through us to forgive others. In Jesus' name, amen.